Well, once again, good morning. It is great to see all of you here today. I know that we have some people out with fall break that was supposed to happen for the schools and some other things or trips or whatever, but y'all, it is great to be in the Lord's house today and excited for all of you to be here this morning. As we continue our series through the book of Ephesians, I would ask if you have a Bible with you, please open up to the book of Ephesians. And we are going to be turning the chapter in more ways than one. We're going to be in a new chapter, but we're also about to move into a new area of the book of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our series, Life in Christ, How His Story Changes Yours. And this morning we're really moving, this is the pivotal shift in the whole book of Ephesians. Paul's going to begin this next section by saying, I therefore, and that therefore is going to take in totality all of chapters 1 through 3 based on everything that I have said so far now it's time to go and to do we've learned really the last three chapters have been about who you are in Christ what he's done for you remember who you are and now Paul is moving towards now this is how you need to go and you need to live let's look at verses 4 I mean chapter 4 verse 1 he says I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. When I was growing up, I believe it was right before I started sixth grade, a movie came out called The Princess Diaries. And many of you probably have seen that movie. It is probably Anne Hathaway's beginning movie that really kind of got her on the scene. But the whole movie of The Princess Diaries is about this character named Mia Thermopolis, how she's this awkward teenage girl who lives in San Francisco with her mom alone and they're in this beat-down, run-down area. I think they're living in like an old fire station or something like that. And she gets word one day that her father passed away, which she didn't know her father. Um, but come to find out, she actually learned that her father was actually royalty in another country. She gets visited by the Queen of Genovia, who's played by Julie Andrews. And the Queen of Genovia comes there to let her know that she is the sole heir to the crown of this country and place she's never heard of. She's been royalty her whole life and just never knew it. And so the, the queen lets her know, hey, you now are the princess of Genovia, which that was astonishing for more reasons than just one. As the awkward teenager, she didn't look the part. She definitely didn't act the part. She didn't know how she was supposed to act as a princess. And so this is what the whole movie is about, is the queen is to train her how to be like royalty. And basically the whole point of the movie is she finds out she is a princess and she has to learn how to act like it. If I were to sum up what Paul is doing here, he's saying this, you are a follower of Jesus if you are in Christ. It's time to act like it. This is the turning point that he makes here. He says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Act like it. This is an exhortation. I urge you, pick up the bootstraps now and go and do it. It's time to actually do the work. I love how he says, walk in a manner worthy. This idea of walk, you're going to see that throughout the rest of Ephesians. This word walk means let your lifestyle be conducive to this. We have some lighting issues, obviously. Let your walk be conducive to this. Let your lifestyle be conducive to this. In other words, as you go, live as a follower of Jesus. And y'all, before we even begin all of this, Paul starts with this statement of saying, here is the challenge. Live like a follower of Jesus. Live like a follower of Christ. And so the first part of this is really, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, everything that comes next, you have to accept the call. 
You have to say, if I'm a follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like to walk like a follower of Jesus, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. So where does Paul start? Well, for the American church, we would assume he probably would start with the individual, but he does not. Paul starts by talking about our responsibility that we have within the church. He starts by talking about how we must contribute to the health and the growth of a church. And that's what Paul's about to lay out, three marks of what a healthy church looks like and how you as a follower of Jesus must contribute to a healthy, thriving church. Let's pray and then we'll dive into the three marks. Dear Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to do the Lord's Supper this morning as we're about to turn and begin talking about unity in you, the unity of the body, what it looks like to be a healthy body of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see what you want us to see. Open our ears to hear what you want us to hear. Lord, help us recognize our role in the body of Christ in the local church. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. So once again, this morning we're going to see three marks of a healthy church. The first mark of a healthy church is this. It's spiritual unity. Spiritual unity. Mark 1. Spiritual unity. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says this. After he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, how? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He starts by saying how we should have our relationships with one another. He says, your life should be marked by humility and gentleness and patience and love with the desire to maintain unity in the body of of Christ. Now, in saying, first and foremost, you need to be humble. You need to have humility should mark your life. Paul would be standing in stark contrast to most people in his day. See, in Paul's day, humility was a sign of weakness. Humility wasn't even talked about. With, with the, the books that were written during Paul's time, if humility was ever discussed, it was, it was discussed in a negative connotation. Humility was not valued. Pride was. Making much of yourself was. Making your life as best as it can be for yourself is what was prized in Paul's day. It doesn't sound a whole lot different than ours in many ways, right? Like even in our world today where we might would affirm humility is valuable, all of us struggle with it, right? We all struggle to not be proud of ourselves. We all struggle to not want people to know how gifted we are or talented we are or handsome or pretty or whatever we are. This is the struggle of, of really our world, right? We feel like we have to find significance in ourselves, but what Paul is saying is in the church, we should be humble toward one another. I love how Timothy Keller breaks this down. He said, the essence of gospel humility, of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, but it's thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking lesser of myself, but it's thinking about myself Less. He actually wrote a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's small, like 80 pages. I would encourage anybody to read it. But the whole point that, that he's making and that Paul is making here is we have to forget about ourselves. Our, our life has to be about the people that are around us. We have to view success. If we want to cultivate unity within the body of Christ, we have to do it with others in view, not ourselves. We have to be humble. We have to drop our egos. The next thing Paul says, he goes, he says, all humility and all gentleness now, gentleness is even a fruit of the Spirit. And i got to say, whenever I first used to hear about being gentle, I always thought it was weird. I'm like, does that mean you like just rub people? What does gentleness mean, right? Well, gentleness is in the way you interact with people. A gentle person is someone who ascribes enough value to another person that they don't speak harshly to them. They talk tactfully to them. They treat them with respect 
and with dignity and with honor. And this is what Paul is saying. There should be no divisiveness in your speech towards one another. But you should be gentle towards one another in how you respond and how you talk. Next he says patience, which is our crowning virtue for all of us, right? Patience. He says you shouldn't be, be on your own arbitrary timeline expecting people to grow at the rate you want them to, your church to go the rate you want it to. We should be patient with each other. That looks a lot like whenever somebody's struggling, you patiently walk alongside of them as they grow in the faith. You don't lose patience with them. You walk with them. Be patient with one another. Then he says, bearing with one another in love. This might be my favorite. I read in multiple commentaries this week where they said, bearing with one another is not the best rendering of the word in Greek. What Paul is saying is put up with each other. Exactly. Put up with each other in love. In other words, we are unified in Christ, but we are diverse in a lot of ways, right? We have a lot of different interests. People have different opinions about carpet color, worship style, shingle color, this color, that color, pulpit style. I mean, we have all these. And what he says is put up with the difference of opinions. Put up with the quirky person beside you because you're quirky and weird too. He's saying put up with each other for the sake of unity. Put up with one another. Bear one another's burdens together. We put up with annoyances and style or in our preferences. We drop all that for the sake of unity. Yeah, what Paul does is he just lists the life of Jesus, walking in humility, in gentleness, in patience, in love. This is what Jesus did, right? This is what it looked like. And if we were to sum up all of what Paul said into two verses, I think he does it perfectly in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. He simply says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. What Paul is saying is this, is we have to look out for each other. We have to be about each other. We have to care about each other more than we care about our own preferences, our own desires. We have to be humble in ourselves because the church is not about us. It's about God. And if we want to be unified, we have to have these characteristics as people. But I want you to notice how he concludes this part. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then verse 3 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yo, in my study in this week, this might be the most interesting thing I've found that I, I had never heard of before, is we are not called to create unity in the body of Christ. We're called to maintain the unity that is already there. Basically said like this, believers do not create unity, rather they preserve the unity that God has already established. In other words, we maintain this unity in this bond that we already have. We're already bonded together in Christ. We're bonded together through our faith. We're bonded together through our God. Therefore, it's not our job to create unity. It's our job not to mess it up. It's not to bring disunity and discord to the body of Christ, but to live in such a way that we promote unity. I'll put it like this. I have a sister that's a year and a half older than me. Growing up, I believed that it was my God-given right to pester her as much as possible, if you have siblings, you understand that. I would do all kinds of things. There were times never me and my sister, honestly, we just did not like each other. We did not always get along. It wasn't always good for us. But I heard it plenty of times from my parents. Whether you like each other or not, you are family. Whether you like each other or not, you are brother and sister. Whether you like it or not, you're under this house together. In other words, your unity goes beyond what you like or dislike. Your unity is that you are brother and sister and in essence, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying we are united in Jesus. All the other stuff is menial. Our preferences, 
or whatever, we all live for the same common goal and same common mission. Make much of Jesus, live for him, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. To do that, we have to lose our egos, lose ourselves, and love and be alongside one another. Paul's point is that we are unified. This isn't something we have to seek to be, rather it's something we must recognize and protect. And just so all of us understand, he goes on a little riff here from verses 4 through 6, reminding us of the unity we have. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. At the end of it, you want to say, Paul, we get it, right? We get the point. But his point is saying this, y'all, look, we are a part of one body. Anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, I don't care your denomination, I don't care your differences and secondary issues, if you are a follower of Jesus as the Bible says it is, then you are bonded together. One body. Then he says one spirit. The same spirit that dwells one believer is the same spirit that dwells in every other believer. The spirit isn't divided, so neither are we. One hope. We're all unified by the same hope in Jesus, our same future hope to be with him. One Lord, we're all unified because we serve the same Lord Jesus. Our job for all of us is to bow down and to serve him. One faith, we are all unified because we all believe in the same core beliefs in the Christian faith. If you are a follower of Jesus, there are core beliefs that you believe. We are unified in our belief. He says one baptism. Now, while we may look at the physical aspect of baptism, what Paul's talking about here is the spiritual act. This spiritual act of being reborn, being born again, of dying to the old you, coming alive in the new you, as Romans 6 talks about. It's this spiritual rebirth. We all have been baptized by the Spirit in the same way. And then one God and Father of all. We have the same Father. In other words, it doesn't matter what you like or don't like or whatever. We are unified. And we must act in a way that shows that. In the end, we were part of one body with the same spirit, with the same hope, with the same Lord, by the same faith and the same baptism, under the same God, sometimes complaining about different carpet color, right? We are to be unified as the body of Christ. This is one of the biggest ways that we actually uh, show our faith to the world. I want you to see something that Jesus says. In his very last prayer in John chapter 17, he says this, verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at how important unity is to Jesus. He says, my prayer is that in the same way that I'm one with you, a part of the Trinity, that they would be one with each other and one with us. Unity was important enough to Jesus that John 17, the last written prayer we see of Jesus, this is what is on his mind, the unity of his people. And look at why. He ends by saying, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity within the church speaks to people around us. There's enough division in our world. There's enough divisiveness. We don't need that in the church. We should be an example of what unity looks like. Y'all, the word community literally is two words put together common unity you find community where you have a common interest and it's the main aim of your life that's why football players sometimes they can have this common unity to win a championship and it doesn't matter about all their differences or whatever it might be the community of the church is our common unity is jesus and we put everything else as secondary behind that you know at this point before we even move to the next part i would encourage you to think about this do you promote unity within the church or do you contribute to the disunity that may be in the church 
Do you have trouble with gossiping or talking about others? Do you let differences or preferences divide you? Do you lose patience with people very quickly? Maybe you have grudges or you're unforgiving to certain people. Or maybe there's anger or bitterness in your heart toward another. Y'all, in the church of Christ, there should be none of this. And our job and our role is whenever we see these things in our heart to go and to take care of them with our brother or sister in Christ. Because we are unified, we must fight for unity. This isn't something that just happens naturally. We have to fight, seek to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving with an eagerness to maintain this unity in Christ. So the first mark of a healthy church is spiritual unity. The second mark of a healthy church is spiritual diversity. The first mark is spiritual unity. The second mark is spiritual diversity. Now that might already go, wait a minute, we just said unity, now we're saying diversity. Well, to be unified does not mean that we are all the same. It means we're unified in the same thing, the same mission, the same Lord, the same aim. But we are all very diverse, and that is by God's design. I want you to look at verses 7 through 10. Paul says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he'd also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Initially reading this, you might be going, who's ascending, descending, what's really going on here? What Paul is trying to say is that Jesus descended to earth. He paid for our sin on the cross. He rose from the dead, and then he ascended into a heaven. If you remember, Jesus, before he left, he told his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go, because when I go, I'm going to send a gift, and that gift's going to be the Holy Spirit the comforter, right? The counselor. He's going to send the gift of the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit was sent, he sent gifts with the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts is what we typically call them. That's what he means in verse 7 by saying, but grace was given to each one of us. It's a spiritual gift that God has given to us. In other words, we have been given diverse gifts that help promote the unity of the church. Paul continues on this idea going into verse 11. He talks about specifically, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So he starts by talking about some of these initial roles that God has given, or leadership roles within the church. Two of these are foundational ministries that they aren't needed anymore, and the other three are still today. First, he says the apostles. An apostle by the book, in its most technical sense, refers to the 12 apostles of Jesus, or it refers to Paul. To be an apostle of Jesus, it was very strict. You had to see the the risen Lord. You were given specific ability to preach the gospel in areas where they'd never heard it. It was accompanied by signs and by wonders. Apostles of Jesus, also whenever they spoke or whenever they wrote, they wrote with the authority of God. That role is no more in the capital A apostle sense. Now, if you hear somebody say that they're an apostle or they've been sent somewhere, the word apostle means the sent one. So basically, we call them missionaries. But it's very different than the capital A apostle of God's word, even though we still send people to take the gospel to other areas in the world. Secondly, was prophets. Once again, in a technical sense, a prophet was the mouthpiece of God to a people. In the Old Testament, that's why you see Isaiah, Jeremiah, these guys saying, thus says the Lord. He's given me a word for me to share with you. Now, there are still people, right, who are called to take God's word and share it with people, But God reveals his word to people to share it. He doesn't give us new words or new revealed will or new whatever. God has given us all that we need to follow him in his word. Now, you may hear somebody today say, you know what? Well, I'm a prophet. Whenever somebody says that, what they probably are meaning 
is I've been called to take God's word and speak life into people. Now, I wouldn't necessarily be comfortable saying that in every way, but that is how they might use it. The other is evangelists. We're probably more familiar with the word evangelist than we are apostle and prophet in a lot of ways. An evangelist is someone who is gifted in persuading people to understand the truth of the gospel. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he talks about wanting to persuade them to understand Jesus and who Jesus really is. This is an aspect. An evangelist has an incredible ability to persuade people of the truthfulness of Christ and why they should give their life to him. We see those around still today. Next, he gives a shepherd and a teacher. And the more I studied about this, most people believe this in Greek, these are actually joined, grammatically they are joined together. So it's almost like a double role, a shepherd teacher. A shepherd is someone who cares for the flock, cares for the local body. There's someone who knows the local body. And as a teacher, there's someone who feeds the local body. These ideas of shepherding and teaching are actually talked about 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. They're called elders within the church or overseers in the church. They have this job of shepherding people and also teaching them. I think one of the reasons it's separated is you can be a shepherd of people without actually being a teacher. You see that in larger churches oftentimes, somebody who's there to congregational care, but they're not necessarily a preacher. And then you have in bigger churches now as well, you have teaching pastors who don't necessarily do some of the shepherding work, but their primary work is teaching. But nonetheless, these are the different gifts as far as leadership goes that God has given to the church. But why did God give these specific giftings? And why would Paul point out these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers? Look at verse 12. He says, their purpose, their goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying, this goes against a lot of what our American culture or the church culture today says is that we have staff, they're supposed to do all the work, or the people who are pastors in churches who think they are somehow uniquely gifted to do work better than the people. That's just not true. We all are given gifts so that we can serve God. And the role of the pastor teacher, the role specifically is to equip the saints so that they can use their gifts for the glory of God. It's not about one person, it's about all people. It's about serving each other for the common good of helping each other live out their God-given means. I can remember not too long ago, I was actually watching a football game. And there was something that popped up on the football game, and it was of an NFL guy, and it was talking about how he's the offensive lineman, how he was one of the top picks in the NFL draft. In other words, one of the NFL teams, they got to choose one player from all of the colleges that were going to be going or trying to go pro, and they chose to pick an offensive lineman first, which is very common. But for me, I remember I was watching the TV. I was like, isn't it interesting? This guy's getting paid millions of dollars. And he literally, his job is don't let that person get around you. Like, that's his job. He's a professional athlete, and his job is to get in the way. And, you know, I was kind of thinking about that. I was like, but to be a professional, you don't really have to be good at a lot of things, right? To be a pro, you should be really, 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 really good at one thing. Think of a singer. Half the time, they don't write their own songs. They're just really good at singing. It's the same way with football. To be a professional offensive lineman, you're just blocking for the quarterback. That is your role. Now, what would it look like one day if the offensive lineman went up to the quarterback and said, I'm tired of you getting more jersey sales than me. I'm throwing the ball today. My guess is that wouldn't go over very well, right? It wouldn't go over very well at all. What would it look like if the kicker said, I'm tired of getting made fun of and jokes being about me. I'm going out there to hit somebody today. I'm going to be the linebacker. Most likely, it wouldn't go over very well. One thing you see about football is there are distinct roles, and the team's ability to succeed is all based on how much people know their role, and they do it well. 
And above all, it's not about you or about your position. It's about the team. Whether you're starting, whether you're backup, whether whatever, it's to promote the good of the team. Because overall, you're supporting or you're representing your school or your city, if it's a professional league or whatever it might be. And what Paul is saying to us is this. All of us are role players in the church. All of us. Even the pastor. I'm a role player in the church. My role is to equip, is to teach, is to do those things. Your role is to understand your gifting and serve one another. Look at what it says here once again. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. It is their job also to do the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Y'all, we are unified. Our church is built up whenever each of us jumps in and we serve using our spiritual gifts. I love the way Klein Snodgrass, who's a scholar, says this. He says, a spiritual gift is merely the way the spirit works through a person for the good of the community. A spiritual gift is merely the way the spirit works through a person for the good of the community. Now, I want to note this. We're in a day and age where I know a lot of people are about taking personality tests or taking Enneagram tests or taking this test or my strengths test or my whatever test. It's the same with spiritual gifts. I know millions of people, it seems like. Obviously, I don't know millions of people. I know a lot of people that take spiritual gifts tests, and then once they say they found their spiritual gifts, that was the goal. The goal is to find out how I'm gifted. That's not the goal at all. And I think you notice even here, Paul doesn't even discuss gifting types. He focuses more on the attitude than he does specific gift. You see, what I've found is people that want to serve, that say, I'm going to serve, they're going to find out their spiritual gift. You know why? Because they're going to start serving. That's the way it works. You start serving in different areas of the church, and in so many ways, you find out what you like and don't like. You think that you're okay with babies, and you sit in the toddler room, and you realize, I'm about to die if I stay in here much longer, right? Like, the more you serve, the more you find out how God has uniquely designed you to serve. Paul's focus here isn't how to figure out or to use your gift. Rather, it's for them to recognize their need in order to do so. It's the hardened attitude behind the matter. I love how Tony Morita, a pastor in North Carolina, says this. He says, every member in the local church should grow up and use a towel, not wear a bib. Should grow up and use a towel, not wear a bib. What is he saying? He's saying we don't come to church just to eat, just to get fed. But like Jesus, we put a towel around our waist and we wash feet. We serve people that are around us. This is what Paul is wanting them to understand. Your role in the church is to be a giver, not a taker. Your role is to be a giver, not a taker. And y'all, to be clear, there will be a process in the future where my goal will be to help you understand, not just your spiritual gifts. I don't know if a spiritual gifts test really can help you that much. It can give you ideas. But a way to help you understand, God has uniquely designed all of you through your experiences, through your talents. Most often, spiritual gifts look like sanctified talents. I wanted to be a teacher before I became a believer. I think I'm still using that, right? Hopefully, there's a gifting there. But I'm still using that, right? And so the whole point is, one day we will be able to walk through those. But the main point that Paul's getting to is, what is your attitude towards serving? Do you have an attitude towards, I want to be a part of the church and serve however I can? We've all been given gifts to serve, and we need each other in order to help the body grow. So the first mark of a healthy church is spiritual unity. The second mark is spiritual diversity, people understanding their their need to gift or their gifting and applying it to the church and serving the church. The third mark of a healthy church is spiritual maturity. The third mark is spiritual maturity. Look at verse 13. Paul says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, for a goal. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
What he's saying is we serve each other. We are unified together with the common goal of helping everyone grow up in Jesus. Grow up and know more about him. Grow up and look more like him. We help each other answer the call to live their life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This is not an individual race. We are called to do this together. And Paul says we do this until all of us grow in the unity of our faith. We grow in our knowledge of Christ and we grow to maturity. Pastors equip and teach in order to equip the saints to do the work of ministry in order for everyone to reach their full maturity in Christ as we serve one another. And look, there's a purpose to this. Look at verse 14 right after. He says, we do this so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says, we do this so we aren't like children, but that we grow up. Y'all having three kids, ages four and two and one, you learn some interesting things about kids. One of the things about kids is they say the craziest things, but they also will believe anything that you tell them, which is not good to lie to your children, but you can tell them anything, right? I can remember growing up and my parents told me certain things that I know I believe that scared me to death. I can remember, America, if you swallow that gum, you're not going to be able to digest it for seven years. And I used to just think, I'm like, I'm going to have like this massive rock in my stomach for forever. It was brutal. I can remember my mom used to always saying, if you cross your eyes too long, you're going to get stuck like that. That's a lie, right? That's just not true. But I believed her, right? Well, as I was thinking about this, I looked up some this week, things that parents tell their kids that they actually believe. And one mom said, I told my daughter that when she lied, a small red spot would appear on her forehead. I knew it worked because she would cover her forehead anytime she wasn't telling the truth. Another person said, when I was little, my dad told me that I only got 10,000 words a month. And once I reached that amount, I wouldn't be able to speak to them next month. If you wanted to get me quiet, all he'd say is, careful, you're already at 9,000. My parents told me if I pressed the reset button on the power outlet, then our house would explode. That's one way to keep the kids from playing with it, I guess. And my personal favorite comes from a grandparent, because grandparents always are filled with great wisdom here, right? So my grandfather told me, that there was a tube that connected my belly button to my bottom. And if I were to unscrew my belly button, then my bottom would fall off. Can you imagine the fear in that kid as they're being tickled as a kid, right? Like, don't anything but the belly button, right? Like, it's incredible to see the stuff that kids believe, but that's what marks a kid, right? They're gullible. They'll believe anything. And what Paul is saying is you need to grow and mature in Christ so that you aren't like a child, getting tossed to and fro by the waves, being carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and the deceitful schemes that are in the world. You know, if we don't know this, there is a message from the world that is coming to us, and it lays prey on the Christian. So often, we, we fall prey to the lies of the world. We may say, you know what, I know my life isn't about financial success, or about my status, or about what I own, or about pleasure, but how do we live? So often, we live like children, tossed to and fro, running after these things of the world. We may say, you know what, I know that Jesus is one of them. I know that God is in control, that something happens in our life. And what happens? We begin to doubt in God. We doubt in who he is. We doubt that he is here. We doubt that he is around. We doubt that he is working. For many of us, we have people begin to question, you know, the validity of God's word or the validity of what we believe or, or a wrong gospel like the prosperity gospel or something like that. And if you're not strong in your faith, you can start falling for these. And what Paul is saying is we need each other to use our various gifts to build up the body of Christ so that we can become fully mature adults in Jesus Christ. So that the waves or trials of life, the teachings or lies of man will not cause us to go for a loop. 
We will not fall for these lies simply if we are steeped in God's word and mature together. Our goal is for all of us to arrive together. Look at verses 15 and 16, how Paul ends this verse, or this chapter or section. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I don't know if I've heard the phrase before, adulting, but a lot of younger people use that, specifically college students. This idea of adulting means I'm moving out of adolescence, and now I have to learn how to be an adult. I'm adulting. Well, what Paul uses here is a word that we can't really translate in English. Whenever he says speaking the truth in love, he says truthing one another in love. We're truthing one another. In other words, every way we act towards one another is based in truth and in love. It is based in truth and it is based in grace. In other words, what he's saying is this. In order for the body to grow up, we need to speak truth to one another, but we must do it gracefully. We must act in love, care for each other in love. And that means loving each other enough to say the hard things, to speak the truth, to say the things that maybe we don't necessarily want to hear, but that we need to hear. I had a phone call three weeks ago with one of my mentors. I was talking to him. And I said something I was just struggling with and dealing with, and he just gave me a gut punch. But it was the best gut punch ever. I heard somebody once say that whenever uh, another believer reproves you, it should hurt enough to where you go, man, that hurt, but kind of felt okay. Hit me again. Like, it's this idea of speaking truth to someone and grace. I love how Colossians 3.16 says this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you can teach and admonish one another. You hear that? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly that you can teach and admonish one another. Paul's writing that as a blanket statement to the church. You see, so often we think that reading God's word is for our own benefit. That's not true. Yes, it is for our own benefit, but my time in God's word affects you. My time in God's word affects how I can counsel. Your time in God's word affects the people that are around you. Because we're to take God's word and to speak truth with one another, to speak truth in love with one another. I can remember whenever I was at seminary at Southeastern in North Carolina, and one of the chapel speakers got up, and his name was Dwayne Milioni. Sounded like a mob boss or something like that. Dr. Milioni. And I remember he was talking, and he was talking about how pastors don't use the word of God the way they should oftentimes. And for me, knowing I wanted to be a pastor, I felt called to be a pastor, I listened up. He said, a lot of preachers and pastors use God's word like it's a butter knife. They just say the things that you want to hear. You know, God loves you. It's okay. You know, God's going to just take care of you. God's going to whatever. And all they do is just rub the nice little butter on you, right? And he said, that's not right. You're not loving people if you're just a butter knife. He said, but the problem is, is many go to the opposite extreme. They use God's word like it's a chainsaw. They walk in there, rip it on, and just start cutting everything, you know? It'd be like me sitting up here just saying, y'all, all of you are awful Christians. It just is what it is. Let's just get over it and move on in life, right? Like a lot of people use God's word like it's this chainsaw made to rip us. But I love he said this. He said, God's word is not a butter knife, but neither is it a chainsaw. Rather, it is a scalpel in a gifted doctor's hand. It's used to make cuts for the purpose of healing. The truth in it is for a specific purpose, to help somebody recognize their area. But you give them the truth, but you give it to them in love. It's not always easy, but it's in love so that they can listen, so that they can hear, so that they can respond. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What is it saying? 
It's saying God's word hits areas that nothing else can, that physical things can't. It can hit your heart. It can hit your mind. It can hit anywhere. And this is how we are to use God's word. As a people, we grow up in his word. We learn his word so we can truth one another. Speak the truth in love so that we can mutually grow up and be mature followers of Jesus together. Look again at how he ends this in 16. When we do this, he says, The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, that means whenever each part is using their gifts for the betterment of each other, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. To live out our calling to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has given us, it is not an individual calling. It is together. It is in a unity. It is in a body of Christ, the local church. And the three marks that we should seek to have mark us is a spiritual unity, doing whatever we can to fight for it. Spiritual diversity, looking at, figuring out how we are gifted and serving one another in that way. And then all of us running towards spiritual maturity, to look and live like Jesus. You all think the main response coming from this is recognizing that we all have a responsibility, right? None of us are allowed to just come and sit. We're all called to come and serve, to use our gifts. We have a responsibility, and the question for us is will we take that responsibility? Going back to the very beginning, we recognize the task, and will we buck up and will we do it? Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truthfulness that you give in it. But God, also the grace that you bring alongside of it. God, you call us to do things you know are too hard for us, but they're not too hard for us if we rely on you. God, you call us to, to, to be a certain body towards one another that by nature we let simple things divide us so often. We let our pride, we let our preferences we let other things divide us, but God, in you, we can be unified. Lord, I pray that we recognize this morning that all of us have a role. It's a unique role. It's a specific role. And we all have a responsibility in the body of Christ. Help us, God, as Tony Marita said. Help us change our mindset and attitude to where we want to bring a towel, not a bib. See, how can we serve? How can we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? How can we promote unity? God, help us respond to your word this morning. And ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Mike is playing, as usual, I just want to ask you a few questions to consider and how you might should respond this morning. First, the question is, do you accept the challenge to walk in a manner worthy of the calling? You know, for many of us, we just think so nonchalantly about our Christian walk. If we think nonchalantly, if we don't see a reason why we should be active in the local church, we need to go back to chapters 1 through 3. Paul only calls them to act when they understand the calling that they've been called to, once they understand what Jesus has done for them. Secondly, I'd ask you this. What area of the virtues listed do you need to work on most to promote spiritual unity? How can you be more humble? How can you be more patient? How can you be more gentle? How can you be more loving? I would ask you this week, maybe just write those four virtues out and see, what do I need to change here? How can I be better here? Or even better than that, do what we did last week. Pray. God, help me be more humble. Help me see the arrogance in my heart. Help me be more gentle and patient and loving. Maybe you look around this morning and you recognize, even in talking about this, you've been a part of the disunity in the body in some way. If so, you need to let go of the bitterness and you need to ask forgiveness of the person you've been holding it against. If you have anger in your heart for someone else, go and get it right. 
These things will, are like a cancer in a church, and it promotes divisiveness, not unity. The fourth thing I would ask you is, are you a giver or a taker in the church? Your mindset. You know, some of us can even be givers, but we do it so we can get recognition. That's still a taker. For many of us this morning, we need to ask God to help us have an attitude of saying, God, whatever you want me to do, however you want me to serve. I know it looks different in COVID time, but this will pass. But the question is, is do we have an attitude of wanting to serve God and his local church? And the last thing I would ask you is, are you seeking to mature in your knowledge and in your walk with Christ? Are you seeking to help others mature in theirs? Do you speak truth to other people? You know, my opinion really isn't worth a whole lot unless it's backed in Scripture. Then I'll stand on it all day long. Are you speaking truth to one another? Are you speaking truth in love to another believer? We're called to do this for the betterment of the body. I want to ask you as you look at these different opportunities to respond, while Mike prays and sings, think about how do you need to respond to the message this morning?